Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Haworth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Doubleree Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So it is, what day is it today? April 14th, 14th. we're recording this? Yes. yes. Oh, and so now all the listeners know how much we procrastinated on this dish and <laughs> let it go to the absolute hot off the presses. <laughs> we're just trying to stay current, you know what I mean? That's true. We want it to be fresh. It's definitely right. that we wanted it to be fresh. <laughs> yes. So um, we're like fully on that train that is barreling toward the end of the semester. The final stretch. The final stretch. And you and I thought that it might be nice to talk about our summer plans. Yes. What we're looking forward to, uh, you and I maybe um, tend a little bit toward constantly drooling in anticipation over breaks. And (laughs) (laughs) so instead of (laughs) wishing for something to be over, we can ensconce the vibe in looking forward to something wonderful for just positive (laughs) turkey people. <laughs> so anyway, tell me about your summer plans because you've got some really cool things coming up. I do. I have some super exciting things coming up. First, in June, I will be once again going to the Lunar Art Festival in Madison, Wisconsin. So cool. Yes, I had a wonderful time last year. It was so edifying, really empowering, positive atmosphere to the festival. It centers um, women in creativity, capital A art, so not just music, but also visual art, monologue, dance, all sorts of things. And this year, the composer in residence is Valerie Coleman. Oh my God. Which I am am so in love with Valerie Coleman. I'm so, I adore her music. I love the Amani wins and completely uh, admire everything that she has built her career around. I have kind of Mm -hmm. an emotional, sentimental feeling about Imani in general, being a person of color in classical music, they have Uh such an important meaning to me. And so I'm already preparing myself to not turn into like a sniveling mess when I meet her. Uh, (laughs) Just be cool, Jackie. I'll have to practice being cool. (laughs) Don't play it too cool. She'll think you won't like her. (laughs) Hey, Val. 
whatever. <laughs> I guess you're here too. But <laughs> I'm playing three of her quintets and I'm super jazzed. I don't typically get to play with a woodwind quintet on a regular basis. That's not something um, just because of performance injury and whatnot that my colleagues and I can do on the regular. So having the chance to collaborate in this awesome chamber music environment, music you can really sink your teeth into, it's not easy, but it's also not that kind of hard that it's like frustrating, discouraging hard. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's just, that's the best way I can put it. It's sink your teeth into it, music. And Mm -hmm. I've just been in the best mood. I get up and I'm super jazzed to practice and there's enough variety and enough time, but not too much time. It's just like the perfect vibe, the perfect situation. I cannot wait to go back to Lunart 2019. And then in July, I will be teaching at Lutheran Summer Music, which is a summer program for middle school high schoolers. I'll get to teach the bassoon and hang out with Courtney Miller all day. Love Courtney, friend of the podcast. Yes. So that'll be a ton of fun. And right at the tail end of that, we go to IDRS. So those Mm -hmm. are my big things going on this summer. Oh, and this is not till the beginning of next year, but I'll have to start practicing in the summer. My colleagues and I are kicking off the next academic year with a concert of Soldier's Tale on the second half, Dead Elvis on the first half. And it will be my first time playing Dead Elvis. So when I think about summer 2019, it's basically practice music that I'm incredibly psyched to play and collaborate in ways that I'm super jazzed about. So I'm just kind of walking around like that hard eye emoji all day, (laughs) (laughs) which is a nice speed for me. Yeah. (laughs) What are your summer plans? Well, um, I am going up to Michigan for a lot of the summer. I'm going to, after IDRS, I'm going to teach at the Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp middle school session and also play in the opera this time for session three and four. My wife works up there all year round, so it's going to be awesome to spend time with her. And Michigan in the summertime is heaven on earth. And I don't know... If a lot of, uh, there probably are a lot of people out there that have uh, experience teaching middle school oboes, but I love it. Those middle schoolers, Mm. I started doing it last summer and they were so hungry for knowledge, so funny, just the best attitudes. It was really a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to working with the middle schoolers again this summer, that'll be like July into August. And then playing uh, in the opera pit is going to be really fun too. I just adore working with singers. So um, I love playing with singers and it's going to be, it's going to be really cool. And um, at IDRS, my uh, USM Reed Trio, the Magnolia Reed Trio is going to play a 30 minute concert there. So I'll be prepping for that. And while I'm at Blue Lake, I'm going to play a recital with uh, my flute colleague, Danilo Mazadri, because um, he's also at Blue Lake over the summer. So we're going to do a chamber music recital at Blue Lake. I'll be prepping for the FOSS that um, had to be rescheduled again. <laughs> so it's like the cursed concerto. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely doing it in the fall. So I will be learning that um, over the summer and learning some new rep by women composers that I'm hoping to program um, on a faculty recital 
yeah, just like learning a bunch of music and exploring other creative projects and trying to get outside and, you know, nurture my whole artist rather than just the practicer. So it's going to be great. I'm really excited. Yeah. You know, there's something when you're talking about middle school oboes, it reminded me of just how unique summer teaching is that, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, music education for all and for people um, of all kind of intensity and dedication levels is really important, especially at the middle school and high school level. But those students who specifically seek it out in the summer, they are hungry for more. They tend to just be like the coolest, most awesome, enthusiastic students, just like you were describing. It's like the thought of a summer without band or orchestra. I, I can't stand that. And to have just some quality time with those type of students is one of the coolest experiences. Yeah. I mean, talk about being a walking hard eye emoji. I just love it. I just love working with students who are hungry for knowledge and have a good attitude. Those are like my two favorite qualities in human beings. (laughs) And um, on the topic of summer festivals, if you are listening and you are a student and you've never considered going to a summer music festival, I highly recommend. I mean, that's where, I mean, if you're in high school or college, there are a lot of festivals out there that you can participate in the summertime at. Those festivals changed my life. When I was in high school, I went to the Lucerne Music Center in upstate New York, and it made me want to be a musician, and it completely changed the course of my life. And um, I was very lucky then to go to Banff and Brevard and Eastern Music Festival and Merrillstone Music Festival. And I just met so many people from all over the country who were as into it as I was. And those relationships really help you as you age. You know, those are the people that are going to have jobs in your field 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And you get to all meet each other before all of that happens and, you know, make friends and connections and collaborate with the people who are going to be big deals in your future. And it's like, I mean, talk about shine theory. Like that is the the beginning of all of it. Yeah. It's a point well made. And when I was in college, I felt like because I was funding my education myself, like summer programs were not for me. Not only can I not afford that, I can't afford not to work. And as time went on and I felt like I was missing out more, I got more inventive and I came to realize that there are a ton of summer music making opportunities for someone who doesn't have all the financial resources that you know an ideal world might afford them. So there are some that are maybe two to four days you know, mm-hmm. um, a lot of universities have grant programs where you can yes. apply for funding to support a summer music making opportunity. Exactly. And there are also student teaching opportunities. So I went to the Boston University Tanglewood Institute as a teaching assistant, and I got to basically work my way into that experience at LSM. I have a student assistant. So there's a lot of options. And I really wish I could go back in time and revise my assumption that it takes a ton of money to get any sort of summer music making experience. That's not necessarily true. You can still have time to work. So yeah, get creative and there are ways to make opportunities for yourself and we encourage you to do so. A thousand percent. 
Hey guys, let me tell you something. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly reed subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's all caps, for 10% off your first order at jennetingle.com. Everyone knows that Jenda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double read world. But there is so much more going on at Jenda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Jenda Industries Artisan Mall? The Jenda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Jenda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.jendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Stephen Kaplan, author of Oboe Motions, What Every Oboe Player Needs to Know About the Body, professor of oboe at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and principal oboe in the Las Vegas Philharmonic. Welcome, Stephen. Oh, it's so good to be here, Jackie and Galit. Could we start off by having you tell us how you came to play the oboe? I was raised in a small town in the middle of Louisiana, of all places, which is not necessarily known for its double reed players, although there have been a lot of great ones that came out of Louisiana. But obviously, we know more for jazz down there and a lot of other things. Um, But my parents loved music. Uh, Both of them, even though they were business people, they both played the piano. And my mom was really active with the local community theater, um, things like that. So they played recordings of music all the time. Both of them played a little piano. My dad um, had a little Chopin piece he liked to play, and he loved to play shortening bread. My mom (laughs) would play a little Debussy or Rachmaninoff. So I was hearing a lot of classical music, and I really was attracted to it. And they took me um, at a pretty young age to hear whatever little orchestra would come through, either a community orchestra or occasionally they used to have those uh, community concert series that went all over the U.S. Uh, really first class, you know, name performers sometimes were a part of that series and would perform in smaller towns like I, I was from. So I even remember my mom telling me that um, I was like six years old, and I I remember the concert still very distinctly. It was an orchestra from Paris. I think it was a radio orchestra from Paris. They were doing Debussy and Brahms. I thought the Brahms was kind of boring, but I loved La Mer. I thought it was just fantastic. My sister couldn't sit through the whole concert, so my dad had to take my sister home. She was older than I was, too. (laughs) My mom stayed there with me because she could tell I really liked it. And also, I think another thing that influenced me turning to the oboe was we did have this small community orchestra, like a lot of community orchestras. It's a a mix of local, professional, semi-professional, total amateur players. It can be a little scratchy and screechy sometimes, but they get together, you know, four times a year and do a concert. 
Um, since there wasn't an oboe player living in my little town, the conductor would invite uh, Ernie Harrison, who was the oboe professor and a wonderful oboe player down at LSU in Baton Rouge. He would invite him to come up and Ernie played with that orchestra on a regular basis. So again, as a little kid, um, I was hearing despite the scratching and screeching for coming from the rest of the orchestra, this always beautiful liquid oboe sound coming from the center of the orchestra. So I found that tone quality very attractive. And um, I actually started playing piano first, couldn't wait to play the piano. And I played all the way into high school. I really enjoyed and still enjoy playing the piano. Um, but when it came time for middle school where they had a band program I could join, you know, I thought it would be more fun to do something social with my music than just always being by myself playing the piano. Um, so I thought long and hard. Uh, it was a tough choice between saxophone and oboe. Um, of course, saxophone is an instrument we tend to associate with Louisiana a little more, and I did like jazz. Um, but I thought about it, and I realized that it wasn't too often that a saxophone got to play those pieces by Debussy and Beethoven that I liked. So um, I decided I'd play oboe. And when I went to the little band camp before uh, I started seventh grade, they had like a little week band camp where you got introduced to the instrument and marching and stuff like that. Um, I told the director, he said, what do, you, what do you want to play? And I said, oboe, and he nearly fainted. He couldn't believe someone actually asked to play the oboe. <laughs> and besides, he was a new band director, and he had had like two weeks of oboe in a woodwind methods class, and he, he was really kind of nervous about teaching someone the oboe. So he was like, you sure you don't want to play clarinet or saxophone or something first? I was like, no, I want to play the oboe. Um, so he did the greatest thing for me. He did give me my first lessons. But he told me right away that if I wanted to play the oboe, I needed to get a teacher that really understood the oboe. So mm -hmm. he gave me the name of a teacher who lived almost an hour away from my hometown, at, um, taught at Northwestern State University in Natchitoches, Louisiana, mm -hmm. which still has a good music program. Uh, back then, the oboe teacher was Bob Krause, Robert Krause, that many people know because for years he taught in the summers at Interlochen. And um, Bob was really a terrific teacher, a, a real character with a great sense of humor and a great love for music. So my parents were amazing enough that twice a month, every other week, they would make that 45 minute drive out to Natchitoches so I could get my oboe lessons. And, um, and that's what got me started. As a Mississippian, it's really nice to talk to a fellow Southerner. <laughs> <laughs> I know I don't sound like I'm from the South anymore. I spend a lot of time in the Midwest. Um, I still say y'all, and I still enjoy a lot of Southern food, though. That's wonderful. <laughs> Could you talk us through your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today? How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, well, I can start from there. I was lucky to get this private oboe teaching early on. He introduced me to reed making early on. Mainly he introduced me to the idea of what an oboe should sound like. It doesn't have to sound like a duck. Um, even though probably the first thing I remember hearing on the oboe was a duck in Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> he gave me an idea of what a true sound should be like. And, and more than an oboe sound, he really opened up the world of classical music to me. I'm talking about Bob Krause still. Um, who I thank very much for the early training he gave me. But he uh, introduced me to great opera singers, 
and uh, gave me a sense of what great classical singing was about. And so a lot of my early role models really were were singers and violin players and cello players almost more than oboe players and i still tell my students those are great role models for us that we should be thinking outside the box not just listening to other oboe players um so that got me off to a good start i was able to work with a, a really good band program for a little while and then things kind of burst apart unfortunately there was a lot of um you know, I, I lived during the civil rights era. I was going to high school in the mid to late 70s. Mm -hmm. um, but all through elementary, middle school, high school, there were all these issues with forced busing and integration and, and a lot of things going on. So we had a terrific band program that um, once they started doing some uh, fooling around, moving teachers around, uh, they decided that the sports programs and the band programs, why do those people stay there for years and years? Why can't we just move a teacher around? Um, forgetting the fact that the whole purpose of building a team to do something with excellence means you do have to stick with it for many years. So they randomly started moving uh, directors of choir programs and band programs around and um, it things like I said just kind of fell apart where uh, students left the program and stuff and and I had this wonderful experience with a band that then no longer really was even there anymore um, but I loved music enough that I wanted to somehow stick with it and and a lot of my colleagues were quitting band but I kind of struck a deal with the new band director I said you know I'll stay with the band program because I really like band um, but I don't want to do marching band anymore and he actually fell for it. And <laughs> during marching season, I was able just to go in a practice room and practice for a couple of months. And then I joined everybody once concert season started. And that really helped. But that allowed me, because I was a member of a public school band program, it made me eligible to be in honor bands and all states and things like that. And that gave me something really to look forward to. And, um, and so I did all of that stuff. And I was winning lots of competitions and things like that. I also had this really unusual experience, again, being in a small town, kind of what some people would say is the middle of nowhere, where you don't expect culture and classical music necessarily. Um, what's so interesting is how many really wonderful creative artists have come from this area that I'm from in Louisiana. So like I said, we had this community orchestra that only played four or five concerts a year. The conductor of the orchestra was a former Juilliard grad, a wonderful clarinet player, and he was married to an absolute world-class bassoonist, Sylvia Kushner. I'm trying to remember her maiden name because she's actually on uh, the first recording Stravinsky did of his octet. She was wow. one of the players. And there she was down in South Louisiana. Um, and she and her husband would drive up from Lake Charles every week and work with this community orchestra. So she was really encouraging. And by the way, um, the name Kushner might sound familiar. Tony Kushner, of course, is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, one of those great creative souls that came from South Louisiana. This was his mom and dad that were working with this orchestra. So I knew Tony back in high school, not very well. I knew his brother, Eric, much better, who's a, who's a first-class horn player, playing in, has been playing in Vienna for a couple of decades now. Um, but anyway, it was that family that also, like me, um, it was a liberal Jewish family somehow surviving in South Louisiana. Um, so we have a lot of commonalities, and certainly classical music was one of those loves that we shared. 
So um, Sylvia was very encouraging, and, and um, we were at like a little party after one of the concerts. I was a junior in high school, I think. Yeah, um, or going into my junior year, she said, you know, Steve, you're sounding really good. Do you have any plans for this summer? And I told her I was thinking about doing this, this camp or that camp, the, the summer music, something like the Brevard music camp along those lines. And she said, well, have you ever heard of someone named John Mack? And I said, yes, of course. Um, I had heard those Cleveland Orchestra recordings and I thought he was a beautiful player. And she said, well, would you like to study with him? And I mean, this was just coming completely out of left field. I didn't know where she was coming from. And I said, well, of course, I'd like to study with John Mack. What do you mean? Um, and she said, well, I'll just call Jack and see if he can do something for you. Um, wow. <laughs> it was amazing. I was my junior in high school. And, um, and sure enough, um, she told me to mail him a little resume. So as a high school kid, what's my resume? You know, I was first chair in the district. <laughs> honor band i made a one in solo and ensemble but i put my little <laughs> resume together and i sent it i gave it to her which she apparently forwarded to john mack out of the blue a few weeks later my mom said steve you have a call and i go to the phone and this voice those people that know john mack know he has a very unique voice i didn't know him at all at the time but anyway some strange voice on the phone says is this Stephen Kaplan, first chair of Louisiana Allstate? And, oh, yes. my <laughs> and, and it turns out that before he did the John Mack Oboe Camp, uh, he had a couple of weeks between the Cleveland Orchestra season and the Blossom Festival, summer festival that the Cleveland Orchestra did, um, where he would invite people to come to Cleveland. People, mostly they were people who had just graduated from college. They were young professionals or people who were looking to win an orchestra job. Um, and he would invite them for a couple of weeks to come and take lessons with him so he could help them maybe with winning a job or something like that. He had never taken someone who wasn't in college before. But as a favor to Sylvia Kushner, he invited me to come out for the two weeks and work with him. Every other day for that two weeks, I had a lesson with him where I was expected to bring three brand new reads and learn two Fairling Etudes. Hmm. I had two days to do that. <laughs> and so it was really intense, but it was an amazing eye-opening experience. Just being in the room and hearing that beautiful sound of his right next to me was really inspiring. And I worked really hard. Um, and I learned so much. It was only two weeks, but, um, but I really did learn a lot. And oddly enough, he actually said at the end of the two weeks that he had these friends. Um, I can't remember. Pat Grenier, was that her name? And, and that fellow, Joe Robinson. The two of them have been trying for a couple of years to get him to do a camp for younger students. And he actually told me, you can say I'm lying, whatever, but... He said, I've enjoyed working with you so much for the past two, two weeks. I realized that I have something to offer to high school kids. So I'm going to tell them yes. So I might be the reason, or at least part of the reason, <laughs> besides all the cajoling by Joe Robinson, that he actually decided to do that camp, um, which is pretty cool. Um, anyway, um, I was studying on a more long-term basis back in Natchitoches with Bob Krause's uh, successor, uh, Sally Bennett was her name then later. Some people know her, Sally Falconer. She also was a terrific teacher. And um, she had studied with Ray Still and was giving me a lot of his 
insights that she had learned from him. And so I was intrigued by both of those teachers. Um, but ultimately, I did end up going to Northwestern and working with Ray Still. And um, that was huge for me in many ways. Uh, probably the biggest was just coming from this small town in Louisiana and moving to this huge city of culture, Chicago. And I was so excited about it. And I, I tried to take advantage of everything I could there, going to as many concerts as possible, going to the museums. Um, I actually didn't know if I wanted to be a music major. It was kind of, I was good at music, but I was good at a lot of other things. And I, it was just almost an experiment that I applied to these music schools. And if I got accepted, then maybe I'd, I'd be a musician, but, but part of the reason I ended up going to Northwestern, besides that, of course, Ray still, you know, I loved his playing and was attracted to him as a teacher. Um, but I, I actually thought I might be better in that uh, university environment as opposed to a conservatory environment, uh, because I didn't know if maybe I'd be a math major instead or a psychology major, or one of the other interests I had, religion, philosophy, some, something along those lines. Um, so I thought I'd just try out music and see how it went. But if I didn't like it, I could stay at Northwestern and still do a lot of other things. Um, and actually, even though I stayed in music at Northwestern, I did do as much away from music as possible. I took a lot of classes outside of music, and I loved that part of being in that liberal arts environment. But obviously, I got so much from uh, being a part of the music program there as well. And, and overall, Ray Still is probably the biggest influence on my oboe playing because he had a very unique way of playing and certainly a, a very creative way of teaching um, that I think was like nobody else. And it was not always easy, but in the long run, uh, it, it made me who I am today. And I'm certainly happy I had that experience. Well, I don't know what impresses me more that you were the inspiration behind the John Mack oboe camp or <laughs> that you got out of marching band. You are a hero to all the <laughs> <double> players. <laughs> yeah. We oboe players have to be devious sometimes, don't we? <laughs> oh, that is true. <laughs> so when I left Northwestern, it was kind of mixed. I had learned a lot, but there was a lot still that was unformed in me as a player. Um, still threw out so many ideas, and there's no way I could sort them all out and still do all the coursework I had to do and play all the concerts I was playing and things like that. So um, I actually ended up taking a year off, and um, even though initially I did apply to a grad school and got accepted and, and was planning to immediately go to grad school, um, when the summer came around, I realized I just wasn't ready to go back into the rat race. So I called up the grad school and I said, is it possible to defer my acceptance? And they agreed, which was really nice. And I spent a year soul searching. Um, I actually was in Europe at the time. And um, it's kind of amazing what a great clan we belong to as oboe players. Mm -hmm. So I knew Ernie Harrison uh, because... He did play in this community orchestra, um, but when I was in high school, I played side by side with him. I took a little audition and I got to play second oboe in the community orchestra and I played English horn solos. And so 
starting my sophomore year in high school, I was sitting right next to Ernie Harrison. And that experience really taught me a lot. He was such a professional and such a gentleman that um, I just learned what it what it was about to be an orchestra musician just by observing the way he treated the other colleagues in the orchestra and listening to how well prepared he always was and stuff like that. Um, but I only took a couple of lessons on the side with him. He really wasn't my teacher. And then I left the state of Louisiana altogether. I didn't even audition for LSU. Wouldn't even consider that because I couldn't wait to get away from Louisiana and that lifestyle that had been part of for 18 years. I wanted to get to another part of the country so bad. Um, but anyway, when I find myself in Europe five years later, um, again, at some random party, like after the local symphony, um, my parents ran into Ernie Harrison and he asked them, what's Steve doing these days? And they said, well, it's, it seems he's going to be in England for a while. He likes it there and he's just staying. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, he said, well, I I'll get in contact with him. And out of the blue, Ernie wrote a letter to Lady Barbaroli, Evelyn Rothwell Barbaroli, introducing me. I didn't ask for this Amazing. at all. And in a way, like I said, I was kind of soul searching and not even playing the oboe that much. But but out of the blue, Evelyn Rothwell calls me up and invites me over to her house. Um, so there I am. And it was really fantastic. She was amazing. Immediately just gave me a big hug. And I took a few lessons from her. She introduced me to Janet Craxton. I took a couple of lessons from her. And they both really helped me with this soul searching I was doing and really finding my way as an oboe player. Over the course of that summer, uh, of that year away from the United States, um, I actually decided I didn't want to go to the grad school I had been accepted to, and I applied to University of Michigan instead and got accepted there. And so that's where I ended up continuing my education afterwards, and that was a great experience as well. They had a wonderful orchestra. I got some great oboe teaching there, um, first from Arno Mariotti and then from Harry Sargas. And, um, you know, all of these things, again, this oboe clan, you know, they were great colleagues there. I was so lucky at Northwestern, a lot of my fellow students were just terrific players and, and fun people to be around. And one of them, Peter Cooper, has made an incredibly successful career out of the oboe, and we still stay in touch. I was inspired by him when he was a freshman in college, and I'm still inspired by him. And the same thing at Michigan. I got there, and Nancy King was an undergrad when I was doing my master's. And wow. She she sounded amazing back then as a sophomore in college, um, and still she inspires me today. And, and we're actually going to be working together this summer in the Czech Republic at an oboe festival. So, um, so you know, I, I always tell my students, you know, make friends with the people around you. Be careful what you're doing because these are people you're going to see your whole life, and, and they really can be great friends to you. Um, so what happened after then, I actually... Um, Again, the friends you make. Um, I was away the summer after my master's, um, and they had an audition for a professional wind quintet that was based in Detroit, but I wasn't there to take the audition. And the person that won it was someone I went to school with in Chicago, not Peter Cooper, but somebody else. And um, she decided after she won the audition that she thought she should stay in Chicago longer. She wasn't really ready to move away. So she ended up turning down the job. And they said, well, what do we do now? You know, we don't really want to have another audition. I guess that's what we have to do. And she, she asked them straight up. She said, did Steve Kaplan audition for you? 
And they said, no, we've never heard of him or whatever. Um, and she said, well, I think he's, I had heard he was going to school there. I think he's around there and he's a good player. You should see if he's interested. So they called me up and I did an audition and they hired me instead. <laughs> so that was my first gig uh, playing with this professional wind quintet doing very high class uh, brunch with Bach performances at the museum in downtown Detroit, going to the Dominican Republic for a month and doing a residency at the conservatory down there, but also doing uh, just receptions and, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings and things like that too. The, the real kind of freelance life. And I started doing the freelance scene in that Detroit area, um, which was really good, but you don't make a lot of money doing it. And they had this new teacher at University of Michigan, Harry Sargas, that they had hired. And I, I was really blown away by his playing and his teaching. Um, so he said it would be actually now that I was a Michigan re resident, because I was getting taxes and employed there in Michigan, um, it was actually probably cheaper for me to take lessons as a DMA student than he, he would charge me individually for lessons. <laughs> he was kind of joking. But anyway, it got me thinking about doing a DMA. So I started the DMA kind of piece by piece, and I started taking lessons with him, which I really enjoyed. I also started doing Baroque oboe at that time in Ann Arbor. They had one of the top uh, professional Baroque early music ensembles specializing in Baroque music, a group called Ars Musica. It was one of the best in the country. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, many of the players that were a part of it now play with some of the other biggest groups in the world right now. Um, so I was really intrigued by this authentic instrument thing. And, uh, and I started taking some Baroque oboe lessons and um, actually eventually got good enough that I got invited to play third oboe sometimes with them. Um, so it was, I was doing more and more of the early stuff as well, which was really fantastic. I took an audition for an, what was called an international orchestra in San Diego. Um, in many ways, it's like what now has become very successful in Florida with Michael Tilson Thomas's orchestra down there. It was the same idea. It was an orchestra specifically for kind of pre-professional musicians to learn the ropes. You were given kind of a, sti a living stipend, a place to live and food to eat, but not much more than that. Um, this one, the twist was that it wasn't just American performers. It was truly an international orchestra. There were performers from Hungary and Great Britain and China and El Salvador. Um, so I won the audition to play with that group, and I did that for about a year or so. Um, and it was a really good experience in a lot of ways, mainly because this character of a conductor we had, Zoltan Rozhnyi, um, was the original founder of the Philharmonia of Hungarica. He had been an assistant conductor to Leonard Bernstein with the New York Philharmonic. Um, he was just a little bit crazy, and that's probably why he didn't have a bigger career than he, than he ended up having. Um, but he conducted San Diego Symphony, he conducted the Nashville Symphony and others. Uh, he was a really fine musician, though. And um, those rehearsals, you know, he felt to build a young orchestra, the best thing to do was play Haydn symphonies and Mozart symphonies. And I really learned a lot about phrasing and balance and, again, what orchestra playing really was all about. 
in some of those rehearsals, which he did, and he could speak seven or eight languages. So these rehearsals were really interesting sometimes. Uh, but I learned a lot, but I, I just didn't see much future. I could see how he wasn't getting the funding that he needed to really sustain a program like this, which of course they did so well with the New World model down in Florida. Um, so anyway, I was sending my resume out and I actually got uh, asked to come into Las Vegas and take this audition uh, to teach at UNLV, but also to play with the Las Vegas Philharmonic at that time. I think it was called Las Vegas Symphony or Nevada Symphony. It's gone through many incarnations over the years. Um, and luckily enough, and luck, you know, in Vegas is a really great thing. Um, but it, Vegas has been lucky for me. Um, so they invited me, they liked me and invited me to come out here. And when I told Zoltan, this conductor in San Diego, that I was going to leave, he told me it was the worst decision I would ever make, that I really should stay, that his orchestra was going to build up and be something. Um, but sure enough, after I was in Vegas for about a year, his orchestra completely folded. So I think I made the right decision. It's just been a process of building from there. When I came to Las Vegas, it, there wasn't, Las Vegas wasn't known for its classical music scene, let's say that. Um, and the, even though I discovered quickly, there were a lot of really fantastic musicians here. It was a small group of people and it was a struggle to get audiences for concerts and to do new music and things like that and it was a struggle to get oboe students to come out here i was mainly teaching music appreciation classes when i first got here um but again i i just got very lucky and um when i moved here it just was the beginning of this amazing growth spurt for the whole area um, Las Vegas literally was the fastest growing metropolitan area in the country for a full decade and along with that, the university grew, the music department grew. Uh, when I first came here, I didn't think I'd be here more than a couple of years. Um, but I, I did get offers other places, but because things kept getting better and better here, I decided to stay here. And it's, I think it's been a good decision overall. What sparked your interest in body mapping and how did that lead to your book, Oboe Motions, What Every Oboe Player Needs to Know About the Body? I was a very tense player myself. Um, I was one of those players that moved around a lot when I played. My, I would get red in the face. I would sweat, especially down in Louisiana and Mississippi. That sweat would be pouring. Oh, um, <laughs> not, that's another reason I've liked Las Vegas. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, so many people are handed the oboe and told immediately, and I was one of those people, uh, this is the most difficult instrument you could play. And we accept that as a challenge, but we also accept that, that it is the most difficult. And so we think it's okay if you're sweating and it feels hard. Um, and that's something I talk about in my book. It actually isn't the most difficult. I mean, we like, don't let it get beyond this podcast, okay? Yes, for the rest of the world, we are the most difficult. <laughs> but in reality, um, I think it's hard initially because the reeds are a mess to deal with, and you have all these little screws that can get undone. There's so many keys on the oboe. But if you have an oboe that's adjusted, if you have a reed that plays at least reasonably well, there's nothing about the oboe that's any harder than a clarinet or a trumpet or any other instrument. Um, it's, it actually should be easy. And um, so, so anyway, we might get to that later. Let's get back to my journey towards body mapping. Um, because of that tension, I was looking for ways to find greater ease and freedom. And um, I had 
on the advice of friends, taken Alexander lessons with mixed results. Um, and um, so I kind of gave up at first on the Alexander lessons, even though my friends were raving about it. It was kind of expensive and it was kind of happening slow. And I, I felt it was helping a little, but I wasn't sure. Um, but it was still intriguing to me. Um, then I had this experience at IDRS, of all things. Um, the reason I got hired at UNLV, like I said, there weren't many oboe students to teach here, but we did have a really first-class faculty wind quintet. Uh, Yoshi Ishikawa, who some of you know, uh, was the bassoon instructor here at the time, and he's wonderful at um, organizational thing, grant writing, and such. So he had put together this first-class quintet, and, um, and they needed a good oboe player to be part of that group. So that's really why I got hired. And uh, the first or second year, we went to IDRS in England. It was in Manchester, England. And there was this wonderful person, Margaret Edis, who teaches at the Royal College. She's a former oboe player who teaches Alexander Technique. And she was offering free 20-minute Alexander sessions. And I thought, you know, it didn't click with me before, but I should try it again. This is an oboe player. Um, and so I went in with my oboe and had a 20-minute lesson that absolutely changed my life. Um, I felt like a completely different person. Um, I was able to do things I had never felt comfortable doing before on the instrument. And so I knew I needed more of this. So I made it a point to try to get more Alexander lessons. Unfortunately, nobody in the state of Nevada was licensed to teach it. So I would only get it when I was on the road. I, I would go to New York City once or twice a year for a conference or a performance or something. And I found a teacher there I like to work with. Um, so that was helping a little. Uh, having the right teacher is really important for Alexander Technique. So I found someone I clicked with. But still, it was only a couple of times a year, and I kind of felt frustrated. So I expressed that frustration to another wonderful colleague of mine, Jim Brody, who at the time was teaching at University of Colorado Boulder, I should say, at the time. He still teaches there. Just He, he doesn't teach oboe anymore. He only teaches Alexander Technique now. Um, but Jim... Um, I was expressing my frustration to him that I really liked what I was getting from Alexander, but I felt like when I wasn't with the teacher, I was kind of losing it. I didn't know where to go with it. And so he handed me Barbara Conable's book, which was called What Every Musician Needs to Know About the Body. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think this is for you, this body mapping thing. I never heard of body mapping, but I read her book and I really liked it. And so I found out she was doing a workshop in Portland, Oregon over the weekend so I went up to Portland and took the workshop and, and arranged ahead of time to have a private lesson with her. And basically the rest is history. <laughs> um, she was wonderful. She was the first true mentor I had in my life. Um, other people I had worked with weren't as good as following through and helping me with my career and things like that. But she not only wanted to help me figure out how to be a more free oboe player, um, but once I did that work with her, she was really interested in disseminating this information to more people. So she encouraged me to write the book. She got me connected with a publisher who would publish the book. And she even helped me with some of the editing of the book. So that was a wonderful relationship. Um, so part of that journey was my own feeling, having seen most oboe players were like me. They would get red in the face. It looked difficult to play. But I saw a couple of players who made it look effortless. 
And I was, I just wanted to be one of those players. I wanted to figure out how to be that person instead of being the person I was. So that was a big draw. And that's what Barbara Conable liked about working with me. Most of the people that went to her, she's, she's really a guru in the Alexander Technique world because she saved so many careers. Most people go to her when nothing else works. They've been told by a medical doctor they can no longer play their instrument, that their career is over. And as a last resort, they would go to Barbara Conable and should not only get them back to playing, but in most cases, they play better than they ever played before. So she was kind of known as a miracle worker. I went to her without any pain or injury. I just felt uncomfortable. You know, I, it was just too hard, you know, basically. So she really liked that process of working with someone who wasn't injured, but just wanted to make it easier. The other motivating thing for me was as a teacher, I had students who had gotten into trouble. I had a student who had TMJ, uh, lockjaw, basically. I had a student who got severe tendonitis. He was lucky enough to win this fantastic scholarship that got him to Interlochen for the summer. And then from all that intensive playing he was doing at Interlochen, he got a very severe case of tendonitis. And I felt helpless with these students because I had never had tendonitis. I had never had lockjaw. I didn't know how to help them. So that was my other motivation for doing this body mapping was getting a better understanding of the body so that I could be a better teacher for my students as well. Um, the learning about body mapping absolutely changed me as a player and as a teacher both. And that's the reason I wanted to write the book. Um, I didn't want to forget this stuff. The book was uh, it's very selfish, actually, in some ways. I was taking notes as I was learning all this stuff, and I didn't want to forget it. And I felt it might, might help other people if I shared it. And like I said, I was getting this encouragement from Barbara Conable to share it as well. And um, probably the most fantastic thing of my career are the random people that stop me when I go to an IDRS convention are the many emails I've gotten over the years from people who have told me, they, their careers have been saved just from reading my book, um, that, that the things I wrote in my book made them rethink their approach to the instrument, and, and they were at a crisis point where they were going to give up the instrument, and instead, they've had that same experience where um, understanding this information and then really internalizing it, which is a serious proposition, <laughs> you have to take it seriously because it's hard to break old habits, but if you do commit to it, um, you can get back on track and you can actually play better than ever before. So that's been really satisfying for total strangers to be telling me that, that I've saved their career, basically. You're also the author of The Breathing Book, which is a set of 30 lessons that help the oboe player with issues of breathing and physiology. And you mentioned before, perhaps going more in depth about the physical approaches that you saw. Is there tendencies in the physical approach to the oboe or as a pedagogue, do you find yourself noticing common approaches in the physiology or physical approach to oboe playing um, that you're constantly identifying and correcting? Oh, yes. Well, most of us do work too hard. Again, it's back to that basic issue of we, we are told it's supposed to be a difficult instrument, so we, we're okay with making it difficult. Um, and there is um, a certain amount of effort that immediately we feel because of that back 
pressure thing, whatever it is to people. And that's interesting in itself. I've asked different people, what do you think back pressure is? And I get all kinds of interesting answers. Um, but most of us feel it as kind of a almost feeling strangled because there's nowhere for our air to go. And so even though we're able to play these very long phrases, our carbon dioxide levels start getting higher and higher, and um, it, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And the response to that will be tension in the shoulders or, or tension in the neck or something uh, responding to that feeling of being strangled. Um, so it ends up being kind of a snowball effect. So a lot of playing the oboe is kind of psyching yourself out. And I learned that from Ray Still, um, that even though you hardly are letting any air out in order to make a sound on the oboe, you want to feel like you're letting all the air out of your body as fast as possible and in the easiest way possible. You're kind of psyching yourself out that way um, to counteract that natural tendency to want to cl close down and in and, and react to that strangulation feeling. Um, so there are lots of ways, uh, specifically with breathing. Unfortunately, there are uh, ways of teaching breathing out there that have been part of wind playing for many decades and it just gets us on the wrong path. The idea that your stomach has to be hard the whole time, that you have to push down or bear down um, in order to supposedly support a sound. Um, and I used to do those things. I was taught to do that initially early on. Um, and it, it was part of why the oboe was difficult for me and why I was getting red and sweaty. Um, but I really thought that was the only way I could get a beautiful, rich sound. Mm -hmm. um, so figuring out, know that you can find a way to have uh, fast, supportive pre air pressure um, that will allow you to have just as beautiful a sound without all that extra tension in the abdominals and the neck and all these other places. Um, that was fantastic because it made everything easier and it, and it gave me the ability to play phrases longer and to sound better and all kinds of other things. But it's hard to convince people of that because Tabuto didn't say that. And I run up a, that against that a lot when I've given workshops at places. Uh, well, you know, so-and-so told me this, so I'm just not going to give it up. Well, when you study anatomy, the body actually works in one way. And mm -hmm. um, we don't, we're, we work better musically if we work with the body and not against the body. So even though someone 40 or 50 years ago might have said something because there was some grain of truth to it that seemed to help them, if it's working against the body, it, it really isn't helpful in the long run. And in fact, it can, for some people, be harmful because it leads to injuries. Um, and we do have oboists that are injured, who have neck pain, who have back pain, who get tendonitis, who get locked jaw. Um, all of these issues are, are pretty severe, not only in the oboe world, but certainly the bassoon world as well, the double reed world in general. Um, so the more we can work towards ease and freedom, the better off we are. And that was the biggest lesson I got from all of this. Uh, well, I got so many lessons. One of the biggest lessons is just to have an awareness of more than just the music, that we need an, an attention that's all-encompassing. And that not only includes the music, the other musicians, the conductor, but also includes our own body all the way down to our toes our whole body contributes to making music. So having that kind of whole body awareness was certainly one of the most important things I got from this. But this other really important thing is that practicing isn't just about getting the notes. It isn't even just about getting the notes and playing them beautifully. It needs to also be about getting the notes, playing them beautifully, 
and making it effortless. Making, finding a way to make even the most difficult Silvestrini, Pasquale, whatever you, Strauss concerto, until you've figured out how to play it with ease, you have not mastered that piece. And, and when I think of the players that I admire most, that think besides the beautiful music making, it's, wow, they make it look so easy. Well, the only way you're going to make it look easy is to actually practice making it look easy. So that's a really important lesson I learned personally and that I try to share with students as well. Changing topics a little bit, you are in a unique position where you are playing a lot in Las Vegas, which is the entertainment capital of the United States. The world, wait. The don't world. Worry. <laughs> <laughs> the universe. <laughs> You've had a lot of opportunities to play with musicians from popular music genres, pops concerts. What have you noticed or learned from uh, those collaborations that you can tell us about, you know, the benefits of opening ourselves to a different style of music than the traditional Bach, Beethoven, Brahms? For me, that's one of the, the other reasons I stayed in Vegas was that I had uh, that alternative life here that I might not have had with other college teaching jobs or orchestra jobs that I, I maybe had a chance to get. Um, I've always loved pop music, all kinds of pop music. Um, and so even though as an oboe player, because I don't, I don't do doubling, if I doubled, I'd be called to play on the strip a lot more. Um, you know, usually it's only a couple of times a year that, that there's a show that actually has a dedicated oboe or oboe in English horn book. So I don't do it that often, but, but I've been here 31 years now. So, that, so I have done it quite a bit and gotten to play with all kinds of amazing performers, Motown country, rock and roll, jazz, um, and some of the greats. Um, so that's been really fun for me. And I like having that just as much as I'd like playing uh, Strauss tone poems and Beethoven symphonies, but it seems like maybe I was a little at the cutting edge 30 years ago that I did like to do that, and I certainly would never turn down a job like that, um, because now I think it's essential. If you're going to make it in the music world, there there's so few jobs, you know, a principal oboe of major symphony orchestra available, and there's so many great players capable of doing it that musicians today just have to have the flexibility and the willingness to play a lot of different styles of music. Um, so I think it's I, all of my young players, I encourage them to play every style of music, play musical theater, play, learn to improvise, because um, it only will help you to, to have a better career. And, and it, you know, so much of what people have to do these days is create their own career um, as a freelancer or whatever. Um, so those opportunities are, are enriching. Um, fortunately, especially when you work with people at the highest level, Tony Bennett, Ray Charles, uh, Roger Daltrey, Gladys Knight, these are all people I've gotten to work with here. Um, you learn a lot about great music making from them, the type of focus they have, the type of discipline they have, the love they have. Um, that's the same love that I see when I perform with uh, Hilary Hahn or other great classical artists too. Um, so you always learn from those things. And I, I think the flexibility you gain as a performer to be able to play all those different styles 
can only help you to play Strauss or, you know, Mozart better as well. Over the years, yeah, living in Vegas, it's, it's different. Um, so, yeah, I put in my bio somewhere that I am probably the only oboe player who's had the opportunity to tune a slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened up in northern Nevada when I was playing with the Reno Philharmonic um, for a Pops concert. They did that old Leroy Anderson tune, the typewriter. Okay. I don't, people don't even know what a typewriter is anymore. But that was a really popular tune back in like the 50s. Boston Pops made it a big hit. Um, and so they took the typewriter and um, arranged it for four ginormous slot machines that were specially made by this slot machine making company up in northern Nevada. They were made for this concert and they were made in a way that the percussion section could play them. They actually, between the four um, slot machines, they played the complete chromatic scale plus a lot of bells and whistles. And so we did the typewriter with the four the four slot machines rather than the typewriter, which was hysterical. Um, but we started the concert with a tuning note for the slot machines. So I am probably the only oboist that has tuned the slot machine. Um, another great experience is, of course, Las Vegas is home to the annual Star Trek convention every summer, usually in August. And several times they've hired a group of musicians to play soundtracks from the various Star Trek TV shows and movies just live for the conventioneers that are there. And that's a lot of fun. There's nothing terribly fan, you know, they have some guest stars that come sometimes and that's kind of fun to see the, the stars from the movies and such there. Um, some of them have sung with us and some just speak, whatever. But, um, but probably the most fun is for some random reason, it seems like they've always scheduled this right after the audience uh, costume contest. So people who are, have paid to be part of this convention, they can be part of this costume contest. And you would not believe how people go all out for this. I mean, it is amazing the way they dress them up as various alien forms. And, um, and so they, uh, they win their little prize and that all happens, and then there's a 20-minute break, and we start our concert, and most of them just stay there to hear our concert. So I literally was playing for Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> That's something else I don't think everybody has a chance to do. <laughs> what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Work really hard, stay positive, and be flexible. I'd be willing... Um, Again, maybe it's a Las Vegas thing, but even before I was in Las Vegas, I used to tell people I was a musical prostitute. If it paid money, I was going to do it. Um, other friends were not willing to go down that road. <laughs> um, they just wanted, I'm only going to play classical music, and that's it. And um, many of them have dropped out of the scene because they weren't able to really make a living happen. Um, like I said, I personally enjoy playing all styles of music and find it enriching, but it is a way to... Um, to actually make money and make a career happen. Um, I think more and more programs these days, music schools, conservatories are having, um, are teaching entrepreneurial skills to students. Um, and that's really, that's been an important part of my career. When I got here, um, I had someone who taught me how to write a grant. And I really appreciate that they did that for me. Um, 
And so I started doing that for myself. And the Nevada Arts Council supported many of the early projects I did, commissioning composers for pieces. The recording I made was mostly done with funds that I got from the Arts Council. Over the years, I've got National Endowment of the Arts funds, Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, Meet the Composer funds. Um, once I learned what that grant writing process was, I got pretty good at it. And I was able to win a lot of different grants uh, to do all kinds of projects here that that have helped my career, and, and I didn't mention, but for 20 years, when I first got here, I did continue to play with that quintet, the Sierra Winds. Um, we had a very active career. We made five or six recordings. We commissioned a lot of first-class pieces by great composers, and uh, we performed all over the world. Um, and most of that was supported. Uh, I was the actual artist. Once Yoshi Ishikawa, who had started that group, once he left, I took over as the artistic director for the group and did a lot of the grant writing and tour management and stuff like that. So those are skills, like I said, that I kind of learned on the sly, uh, on the fly rather. Um, but that they're actually being taught in music schools now. We have a business of music course here at UNLV where we teach some of those skills. I think it's really important these days uh, if someone ha is going to make a living that they, you know, someone's still going to get lucky and win that job with the New York Philharmonic. But there are a lot of really good players getting degrees now. Lots. I'm amazed at the caliber of playing that's out there now with young players. Um, so it's increasingly difficult to land those symphony jobs. And, and there's a lot more out there that's really fun to do. So I just encourage people to be creative and persistent. Well, it has been amazing to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish, Steven. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that wonderful interview with Stephen Kaplan. You can find us on all of our social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can listen to Double Read Dish at DoubleReadDish.com. Find us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Google Play, or whatever app you prefer to get your podcast. Don't forget to tune in next time because we will be bringing you an interview with Benjamin Kamen's professor of bassoon at Rice University Shepherd School of Music. Galit, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.